text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50, going through verse 12 of chapter 24. Luke 23, 50 through 23, 12, 24, 12. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the, on the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened... And bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, your word is true, and we know that Jesus died and was raised because your word says that's what happened. Uh, Father, we know that your word predicted that would happen before it did. And Father, we know that the fallen human heart, the human heart that still has remaining sin, is slow to heart to believe all the things that are written in your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help break through the skepticism and non-belief and that you would bring about uh, faith, that you would strengthen weak faith this morning. Father, that you would rightly align our lives in light of the facts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Christians of all people ought to be eternal optimists. I know some of you are skeptical. But often we're not. And when we're not, it's because of sin and unbelief. When we're not, it's not because we're realistic. That's how we want to justify our lack of optimism. We look at people that are optimistic, Christians that have undying hope and we tend to say yeah they're not realists they don't really see what's going on but I want to qualify that statement with this I'm not saying that life is not hard in a fallen world it is the Bible says so much I'm not saying that we should glibly tell people who are really suffering to just be happy. 
Because the Bible never treats suffering as something less than that what it really is. It's suffering. Remember when Jesus was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus had died and he knows he's going to raise them from raise Lazarus from the dead and he weeps with them. Because there's real sorrow and there's real sadness in a fallen world. The result of sin is devastating. I'm not saying that we should just pretend that things are great when things are hard. Otherwise, we'd be guilty of just being positive thinking, delusional truth deniers. There's a lot of people in this world that know not Christ that are positive thinkers. And that what that positive thinking gets them is a better life on this earth. Negative people are miserable. Positive thinkers have more fun. They might even be more healthy. But if you just have positive thinking and it's not based on truth, how often is, have you heard this statement, well, I never expected that. Well, I thought it was going to turn out this way. Most positive thinkers are going to find out that although they maybe were positive and had good attitudes, that in the end, their thinking was not based on truth. So after qualifying all that, here is what I am saying. I am saying that for Christians, grumbling should never be. And when it is, it is sin. And I know, it's like, man, Easter sermon starting out with conviction. What I am saying is that thankfulness ought to be the default attitude of our hearts. What I am saying that as Christians, hope should keep us from total despair. Because hope doesn't put us to shame, as the realist says it will. The Bible says hope does not put to shame. What I am saying is that for Christians, serious joy shall fill our hearts even in the midst of tears and suffering. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.8. As in God's providence, Peter's letter is getting them ready to suffer under the persecutions of Nero in Rome. He says this, Though you now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. A type of joy that's inexpressible. It doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. It's filled with glory. What I am saying is that for Christians, the hope of life and not the fear of death ought to control us. Life should control us, not death. Our guiding perspective ought to be we will live. Ironically, losing our lives and not saving it ought to be what our life looks like to the onlooking world who have their hope merely set on earthly things. So the person that is controlled by life in this world is going to look like someone who's losing their life. Because the person controlled by life is controlled by eternal life. Therefore, the parameters of having to have it here and now fall off the Christian's shoulders. Faith, hope, 
and love should define us. With self-sacrificial love rising above all. Risk-taking love ought to be our fragrance to a selfish, dying world. Everyone else is looking out for number one, but there should be a type of love that risks their own life for the good of others. Our courage and fearfulness ought to brighten the darkness around us through our acts of selfless love. Courage. Risk-taking. Self-sacrificial love ought to be the light that flows from us Christians. But what we ought to be will all be determined by whether or not our hope is anchored in the resurrection of Christ. I know for you as Christians, you know all those things. And those are really convicting things. Because so often, we don't live like that. We don't live how we ought to live. Our faith doesn't believe the way it ought to believe. And therefore, our actions are self-protecting so often. And what it reveals to us is that we think too little about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think too little about reality. About reality. I wrote it, the title of the sermon wrong on the notes. It should read, he said it, and it was so. So who are you going to listen to? And the question is this. Who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the reality that seems true to your feelings in the midst of slugging it out in a fallen world? Are you going to listen to the one whose words have only and always, always been true. God has never lied to us. His prophecies come true. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Paul says, <laughs> if the resurrection isn't true, then you're all dead in your sins. And the wrath of God is waiting all of you for your sins. And I'm the biggest idiot that's ever lived. Because Paul is losing his life on this earth because he knows the resurrection is true. He knows it's true. Our hope rests in God. The first verse of the Bible is this, in the beginning, God. And if that's true, if those are the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God, then we would rightly understand who is in control, who has the authority. After this, what happens? God starts to speak, and when God speaks, things come into existence. God creates. And my question for you at the outset of this sermon is this. Who have you been listening to? What have you been putting your hope in? Let's look at our text in Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin in verse 50. We've just seen Jesus die on the cross. It went dark at noon. He was on the cross for three hours. It went dark at noon as he bore the wrath of God for 
our sins upon himself. And at three o'clock, three hours later, he said, it is finished. And he delivered his spirit up to God. And here's what we read. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in the stone, in stone, where no one had ever been laid, yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and Sabbath was beginning. Now, we might read this and say, well, okay, just we have this climax, Jesus dying on the cross, and now he's just being buried. But he's not just being buried. He's fulfilling scripture. God, the sovereign God over Christ's death is also sovereign over his burial and he's fulfilling prophecy as he does it. He's destroying arguments of skeptics that'll say Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. And Luke gives us the shortened version of that account. And this is all under point one in your notes. Jesus died and was buried for three days, just as he said he would. Now, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70-man uh, council uh, of the Jewish council. He's a respected member of it, and he was the lone dissenter. He did not want Jesus to be crucified. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This was a man who was believing in Jesus. Peter didn't show up. John didn't show up to bury the body of Jesus. A surprising member of the Sanhedrin is the one who steps forward. He was risking his life for his faith in Christ. In fact, Mark tells us that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. If people from the Sanhedrin heard, they could kill him. He would be a traitor. But maybe he felt guilty for not speaking up. We don't know. But now he's committed to do what ought to be done. John gives us, in John 19, he gives us some details that are important to understand all that's being fulfilled here. John 19.31, we read this. Since it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath and, and uh, Passover is, is taking place on this day, since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, the Jews are ultimate hypocrites. They want to follow certain parts of the law, but then they're willing to murder the Son of God <laughs> the day before. But what they're concerned with is Deuteronomy 21-22, where uh, we read, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And Jesus on that cross was cursed for our sins. That, that was true. And then it says, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So they got him dead, but now they have a problem. If these men hang on the cross, the three of them, into their Sabbath, they're going to defile and ruin their Passover celebration. They're going to defile the land. 
You see how hypocritical they are? And so here's what they say. They come to Pilate and they say, you got to break the legs of them so they die fast so we can bury them and get them off those crosses before sundown. And what we find, and the reason why that worked is as soon as you broke their legs, they couldn't push up to get a breath anymore and they would suffocate on the cross. And uh, then we read in uh, John 19.32, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, he saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Well, there goes the swoon theory that he just passed out and came back to life. A spear went into his side, up into his heart, and blood and water uh, flowed out. But they didn't break Jesus' legs, which is interesting because when they were to celebrate the Passover and kill the Passover lambs in Exodus 12.46 and Numbers 9.12, they were told to leave none of the meat until morning, nor to break any of its bones according to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. The Lamb of God's bones shall not be broken. A normal man, uh, it would take two to three days to die on a cross, but Jesus died on the cross without getting his legs broken in six hours. In fact, at the end of those six hours, he cried out with a loud voice. This is what we saw last week. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had already taught the disciples that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord and he will take it up again. It was a supernatural death. He was in control of his own dying, even on the cross. And if he didn't die Fast enough, he would have his legs broken and scripture would be broken. (laughs) But he died fast enough. He was pierced for our transgressions as Isaiah 53 said he would. Scripture is being fulfilled in his death and in his burial. And in Matthew 1240, the main text that's being fulfilled here is this. Jesus said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now this is the way the Jews uh, talk. They're not talking in technical scientific language. What they're saying when he says three days and three nights, he's not saying 72 hours. He's saying Three days, part of a day, a full day and part of a day is how long Jesus was in the tomb. And there was no way that that scripture was going to be fulfilled if Joseph didn't show up and he just so happened to have a tomb right there in a garden to place Jesus' body and he only had linen to wrap him with for a proper Jewish burial, you would need spices. And lo and behold, we're told that Nicodemus, John tells us that Nicodemus shows up, a Pharisee that way back in John chapter three, he was asking Jesus's, Jesus questions and Jesus said, you need to be born of God. Well, now he's come to faith and he shows up with a hundred pounds of spices. None of this was planned But in God's sovereign plan, the burial of Christ is fulfilling Scripture. And we ought to be saying, if there's one thing we know, Scripture always comes true. God's Word always comes true. And he was three days buried just as he said he would be. And then in verse 55... We read, 
This is in Luke 23. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, that might seem like, well, that's interesting information. Well, that's important information. One of the skeptical theories that Jesus really was didn't raise from the dead was the women went to the wrong tomb. They went to a tomb that was empty. They didn't go to the right tomb. But the problem is, the text tells us they watched his body be laid there. In Matthew 27, 61, it says, Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary were there sitting opposite of the tomb as Joseph and Nicodemus put him in the tomb. They know the tomb that they're going to come to in three days. They can't go the next day because it's Sabbath. And so they have to wait until Sunday morning to show up to put spices on his body. And Matthew gives us a little more detail that's really interesting. It's not that nothing happens on Saturday, for the Jews are breaking the law again, the leaders of Israel. When they're supposed to be resting on the Sabbath, here's what they're actually doing. In Matthew 27, 62, it says this, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal away, steal him away, and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing it with a stone and setting a guard. Uh, So they're getting paranoid. They're they're thinking, what if the disciples are going to steal the body? They don't have to worry about that. They're hiding out. The disciples are scared for their own life that the Jews are going to kill them. They're hiding out. But in the providence of God, in God's sovereignty, they go and they make the tomb secure with soldiers and they seal it over so that the skeptics, as they look and say the body was stolen, it would have been impossible for the body to be stolen because the Jews were paranoid. They had the the tomb secured. The disciples stole the body theory is ridiculous. Who is going to go to their own death for a lie? Let's say they went and stole the body. Are they going to give up their life and die for a lie? For what purpose? Their hope is gone. He's dead. They're hiding out. They have no more skin in the game. And so then we read, In Luke 24, and this is under point two in your notes, not only was he buried for three days, just as he said, he was raised on the third day, just as he said he would. Luke 24, 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. This is a two-mile journey from Bethany. The women got up early in the morning and They left and they took the spices they had prepared. Now, none of the Gospels tell us all the women that were there. Uh, When you look at all the Gospels, we know Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Mary uh, Clopas' wife, and Salome, the mother of James and John, were there. And then it says other women. So they, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, by the way, we don't worship on Friday, we worship on Sunday. The cross means nothing without the resurrection. 
That's why we gather on Sundays and worship. But they, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. Mark tells us that on the way, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Evidently, they knew the stone was too big for them. We read in verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. So Luke says these are men in dazzling apparel. Uh, Mark tells us that they were angels, and angels often presented themselves as men, but they were distinguished by a type of clothing that evidently glowed. And isn't this statement profound? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And I just can't help but think this is the lost world. They're trying to find the meaning of life. They're trying to figure out what their purpose is. They're trying to figure out how to be satisfied among the dead. <laughs> there's only one place where there's life and it's in Christ. In fact, in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Revelation 1.18 says, And the living one, I died and behold, I'm alive. For I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, Christ, his name is the living one. In Acts 3.14, uh, Peter says, uh, to the Jews, he says, you denied the Holy One, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. If you want to find the dead, you can't search for Christ. He is the living one. He holds the keys to death and Hades. And then here's the key. Look at what he says. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. An angel shows up and what he says is, he's not here, he's risen. Didn't you listen to him? Didn't you hear what he said? Don't you know that his words always come true? He already told you this. Peter throws his nets in this way, no fish. Jesus says, throw them in that way. He rolls his eyes. All right. Peter's the master fisherman. He throws the nets over here. His nets are full of fish and he falls down and he says, woe is me, I'm a sinful man. Get out of my presence. And he should have learned, but he didn't learn to listen to his words. Jesus said, I'm going to die. And on the third day be risen. Peter takes him aside, says, no, you're not. Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah and Moses are walking away from Christ. He says, I'm going to make three tents. And God says, shut up, Peter. Listen to my son. Listen to him. Listen to what he says. What he says comes true. Jesus, Peter says, I'll die for you, Lord. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. He says, I will not. He didn't believe his word. The rooster crows. When are they going to learn to listen to the words of Christ? They always come true. They always come true. They've never not come true. And in verse 9, it says, In returning from the 
tomb, they told all these things. The women told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Jesus' words plus eyewitness accounts still are not enough for the disciples. Which teaches us about our hearts. Slow to believe, as we're going to see on the road, the two on the road to Emmaus next week. We're slow to believe all that is written, are we not? But he was raised on the third day, just as he said he would be. Look at three in your notes. Jesus defeated sin and death, just as he said it would be. So what we're, we got one more verse. Verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. What had happened? What's the meaning of this? How are we to understand this? It's not just cool that a man rose from the dead. What is the meaning? What was the meaning of it going dark at noon? What was the meaning of the cross? What's the meaning of Isaiah 53, written 750 years before Christ was ever born? Written 400 years before crucifixion was ever invented? where it says he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. What the cross means is on that cross, Jesus bore your sin and my sin and the wrath of God was poured out on him. It was poured out on him. The resurrection is like a receipt from God. A purchase has been paid in full. When you're ordering something on the internet, you want to wait until you get your confirmation receipt. Then you say, okay, it went through. It's, it's done. That's what the resurrection is. Jesus can go around saying all day long, I came to die for sins. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. But if he dies and remains dead, he's just a crazy man. But if he raises from the dead as he predicted he would, then he accomplished what he said he came to do. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. What we earned, that's what wages are, for our sin is death. Physical death and spiritual death in hell forever. Because our sin is against an eternal God, punishment must be eternal for the wages of sin is death and when Jesus was on that cross he swallowed up the payment for sin in himself so that you or I never need to fear physical death or spiritual death our physical death will be temporary To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our spirit will be present with Christ forever. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. Do you understand that? The cross simply means this. The punishment you deserve For your sins, he took on the cross, swallowing them up so that there is no more judgment waiting you. What would life be like knowing that all my sins can be forgiven? That eternal punishment, the wrath of God, is not waiting for me. That's why in John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished. What was finished? Him making payment for your sins to purchase you a rebellious sinner. God 
purchased his sheep on that cross so that they could be called children of God, so that they can receive his inheritance, so that they'll receive a body like his. He defeated sin and death. Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The NASB translation says this, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Putting an end to the agony of death. Putting an end to it. Physical death no longer means a fearful expectation of standing before the judgment seat of God and then experiencing the second death where your body and soul are thrown into hell for all eternity. The agony of death is defeated in Christ. Romans 6, 9 says this, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never again die or will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. I love Revelation 1, 17 and 18. I already, I already read it, but it says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. He has the keys, which means if you have Christ, if you're found in Christ, you don't have to worry about death because he has the keys. Death no longer has dominion. Death only has power where there's sin. And when he swallows up the sin, there's no more fear of death and he has the keys. Fear not. This is how we can live selfless lies for the good of others because the greatest fear of mankind, which is death, is gone. And we ourselves have a guarantee of resurrection. Look at point four in your notes. A resurrection unto life and to judgment is coming. So he says. Are you going to believe him? He's batting 100% so far. And what the scripture tells us is that a human being lasts forever. Here's what John MacArthur says. The truth is that despite the claims of false religions and philosophical systems, death does not end human existence. Death is merely the doorway into eternity through which we all must pass. Everyone will live forever, fully conscious in his spirit and body, either in everlasting joy or everlasting suffering. There will be a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto judgment. Here's how Jesus says it in John 5.28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Unbelievers and believers are getting, their spirit will enter back into their body. They will all get eternal bodies. One will be an eternal body that will live through everlasting punishment separated from the goodness of God in hell as they bear the wrath for their own sins. And the other will be a resurrection on to life. Daniel 12 verse 1 and 2 speak of this, the end of the tribulation. Listen what he says. At that time shall arise My Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since uh, there was a nation till that time. 
But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So if you're here today, my question for you is, are you going to put God to the test? Are you going to put his word to the test? The Jews hated Christ. They hated his followers. If they could have stamped out the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they would have, but they couldn't. In fact, we read in the Gospels that they had to pay the guards to say that the disciples stole the body. You want to know why? There's an empty tomb. You wouldn't have to make that payment if there wasn't an empty tomb. But there was. And they couldn't get around it. And he showed himself to over 500 people in his resurrected body. Many times over 40 days, people saw the risen Christ. And they can't stomp out his word. If you could prove the Bible false, it would be proven false, but you can't. It's the most attacked thing on the face of the earth. And are we really surprised that they can't? Why would God, wanting to reveal himself to his people, give his word but not be able to preserve his word? That would be ludicrous. But his word is true. And he says there will be a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death. In John 3.36, Jesus told Nicodemus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What will you do with him? Will you believe him? Do you really believe that you're going to face him? Are you really going to put a resurrected man to the test? Are you going to put his words to the test? Are you going to believe your own instincts when all along, I don't care what you've been doing, if you're outside of Christ, you're miserable inside. You're looking, you're searching, you're wondering because eternity is put into your heart. Every funeral you went to, you said, I wonder. I wonder what's after this funeral. It doesn't seem right. Yeah, it's because Ecclesiastes Solomon tells us eternity has been put into the heart of man. But there will be a resurrection. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll get eternal bodies like he has. Person dies, their spirit goes directly into the presence of the Lord, body goes in the grave. When Christ returns, the body will be resurrected. The spirit will come into the body. doesn't matter if they've been cremated. If God created man out of dust, he doesn't have a problem <laughs> raising man up. Because when God speaks, it happens. That's how, the, that's how the scripture begins, remember? 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. I love the words of Job. He got his wish here. Job 19.23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. They were. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved in rock forever. Oh, his words were kept. What words, Job? What words do you want us to know? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Even Job knew that he was going to stand before God in his flesh. First Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's getting his people ready for suffering. And he says, put your hope fully in the grace that will come to you 
at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you get your new body and death is destroyed for all of time. That's how you live the Christian life. Set your hope fully. Yeah, why am I supposed to be an optimist? Because I look around and say everything's good? No. Because God has promised that Christ has conquered the grave and has promised resurrection for us. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And my question is simply this, are you eagerly waiting for him? That's who he's coming for. The first time Jesus came, he came to give his life as a ransom for you. A ransom for sinners. The second time he's coming back to save those who are, have put their hope in him. And my question is, is, are you eagerly waiting for the return of Christ? Is your hope bound up in him? Because if you just merely mentally say, yeah, I believe Jesus is true. He's not coming for you. Even the demons believe in Jesus that way and shudder. He's coming for those who've realized that's my only hope. My only hope is in Christ. He said it and it was so. So who are you going to listen to? Father, thank you for the work that Jesus did on the cross on behalf of helpless sinners. Father, I thank you that he didn't just do the work, but he said he was going to do it before he did it, and then he accomplished it to prove that it was a work of God. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. <clears throat> Father, I pray that our faith would be strengthened, that optimism would ooze out of us, that love would control our life, love for the good of others. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.